0: yes folks you've come to the right place if you like curling then you're going to like the show today kevin martin you are down in calgary in the bubble how are you doing kev do we need to send food or something is everything going okay (laughs) everything's going okay got here yesterday and uh, yeah the way it works you uh you get here you
1: get tested immediately so have to get four negatives in a row and then you can go to work but i'm stuck in my room until uh, the test i get today gets done well, I hope you fail
0: those tests. I hope they're negative. <laughs> the Hanson Man is back with us each and every week. You're throwing your referee hat on this week, Warren. There were a couple of rules violations that you do not like.
2: Well, I guess not so much if I don't like. It's just the fact that it's something to look at and discuss and suggest maybe some things that have to happen going forward. All right, let's do this thing. Last Rock, eighth end, up by two.
3: Mm-hmm. I don't, think I'm, I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. It's clean. Oh,
2: don't, oh. Kill it, don't kill it, Ben. Don't, oh. don't kill Line's it. Line's really good. Right on the button, guys. Right Last here. stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes right? as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final grand slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion.
0: Okay, boys, we got a packed show this week, uh, so we got a lot to get to, including a very cool guest that I'll tell you about in a second. On the show today, uh, Kevin, we're going to talk about the mixed doubles. We want your reaction to that. Uh, also, Warren, what you thought of the whole week. I loved it, by the way. I loved it. I loved each and every part of it. There were some issues, about a hog violation, Warren, that you want to talk about. I read your post on Facebook. You know what you're talking about, but a bunch of guys were apparently... On the rock, over the hog line. And uh, that's not good. John Morris and his team's last stone during the semifinal of the mixed. He burned a rock. And uh, we want to know if he handled that right. Kevin, you're going to give us your thoughts on that. Barry Fry is a very successful uh, longtime curler. And if you want to know who that is, uh, that's correct. He's Ryan Fry's dad. Ryan Fry, one of the great thirds who's now curling with John Epping. Uh, We wanted to say hello to Barry and talk about him for a second as Uh, Health is uh, not the greatest. And Warren, you have some history with Barry that we're going to hear about. Also, our Facebook group, very active. Hanson has calluses on the tip of his fingers, okay, Uh, with everything you're doing there. Also, the Men's Worlds is coming up on Friday. Kevin, we want to find out uh, what you're doing during that event. And also, you and Warren are going to be doing the little wrap up that you guys uh, started a couple weeks ago. And uh, it's great, it's fantastic. I've been tuning in. And if we get time, we'll get to a couple of emails. Uh, If you wanna email us, do it at insidecurling at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Kevin, let's talk to you first about the mixed doubles.
1: Well, same as you, Jim, I thought it was excellent. I really enjoyed the mixed doubles game. I was lucky enough to play it a couple of times in Continental Cups. I really enjoyed the, uh, the sweepers. Now, it didn't matter if it was the female or the male sweeper. Having to sweep a whole bunch of rocks back to back to back, panting, sweating, and then have to throw a draw. And that's extremely difficult for anybody that doesn't curl a lot to be able to bring that heart rate down and be able to get that feel. And the curling was fantastic. So I really enjoyed it. I want to walk you through a little bit of the of the ratings. It was kind of interesting. So at the start, it was, it started out kind of slow around 150,000 viewers, but then on the Monday, it, it ramped up to about 200,000. And then Wednesday, 250,000. And I think I could feel that kind of throat Canada and uh, the feel of everything, everybody getting more and more excited. And you know what, Jimmy? The final actually drew 463,000 viewers. So it started slow, but ramped up as the Mixed Doubles event went on. It ramped up and ramped up. And you know, that, that looks good on the Mixed Doubles game going into the Olympic trials and of course the next Olympic Games, So uh, it looks good in my opinion, it looks good for mixed doubles. And it looks like the uh, curling fans uh, across Canada enjoyed it.
0: Kevin, how much longer are you there in the bubble?
1: Till May 9th. Wow. Um, in the bubble between the men's worlds and then the two grand slam events on sports net. And then of course the women's worlds ends on the ninth. So I'm here for. For quite some time, Jim, actually. You can probably hear there's a little bit of action outside my window. Uh, I'm right beside a a freeway. (laughs) So so if there's a few loud cars
0: going by, uh, I apologize. Maybe it was your family's idea, Kevin, to keep you there for that long.
1: Well, I know Shauna's not uh, crying the blues over it, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Over the last 30-some years, I've always been on the road. It's just been what I've done my entire life, and uh, uh, usually gone about 180 days a year. This last year, I've been home every single day. So
0: I think, yeah, Shauna was
1: definitely doing a bit of a dance when I left the
0: door uh, yesterday. Warren, you, um, you're you in BC. I see now there's some restrictions that they're uh, laying down there because of COVID isn't quite being handled yet. There's a new wave coming. Um, give us a little update there, Warren, and what your thoughts were on because you must have been staying at home and watched the mixed doubles. How's everything there?
2: Well, things have changed here a bit. The first time I think since uh, last summer, we've had restaurant restrictions brought in because the uh, virus has surged here a bit in the last couple of weeks, which is not a good thing. However, I was able to watch the mixed doubles like Kevin very intently, mm-hmm. and I guess for the first time, real good opportunity to analyze the whole thing. And like Kevin, I thought it was great. I, I really like the action. I like all the interesting shots that uh, seem to develop out of mixed doubles, and I think it's a great thing for the future. And I think with the Presence that it was given with the coverage that it received uh, last week, that it's probably going to step it up just a one step further up the ladder that it's going to go, and I think it's cer- certainly going to roll. I analyzed a few things. I, I think, being the architect of that game, a couple of things I would look at possibly considering making changes to. When we designed the game, uh, the player throwing one and five and the one, two, three, four could be alternated every end if you so desired. And it seems that the teams have gotten locked into the female throwing one and five and the male throwing two, three, four. And they don't change. I think the only team I saw change was a team from Quebec. So I think maybe there needs to be a rule put in there that says maybe twice a game you've got to change that order. And as to when you do that is up to you, which again would put another very interesting element into it. The other thing I think they might consider is the the power play, which was brought in by the World Curling Federation about three years ago with mixed doubles. And I found that uh, if nothing else, it changes things up to to taking a different approach. Maybe that power play should be allowed a couple of times during the game. Again, it might uh, provide a little more excitement and, and a little more questioning. When are they, going, are they going to do this? When are they not? So I think I'd look at possibly making a couple of slight adjustments, but other than that, I thought the whole thing was uh, fantastic.
0: So why, Warren, would you want to change the women throwing first rock and the fifth rock and and all the men it seemed uh, as you said except for Quebec throwing two three four does it really make that big a difference and why do you want to change that
2: I think just because it's a challenge the fact that uh, originally when we put the thing together it was thought that uh, you got two players there and one's going to be more adept at probably throwing the last rock or is the other is maybe going to be more adept at throwing the high hard ones or or setting ends up but at certain instances Mm -hmm. that could be reversed or you may have one person that's really got both of those abilities, and when you get down into the final couple of ends, you want to make sure you got the person throwing the fifth rock, is the most comfortable doing it. So, that was the original intent, and I think if you were to say that that's got to happen, it would maybe make the teams think a little bit more, and again, have the fans saying, well, when are they going to make this switch? When are they going to when are they going to have uh, whoever it is throw that last rock? Which ends? Are they going to do it early? Are they going to do it late? Are uh, they going to do it in the middle of the game? So, I think it just stood... Add a little added element to it, which was the original intent was to have it being part of the game.
0: Uh, I should mention, uh, as we carry on, also on the show today, uh, if you've been watching curling over the last several years, John Schuster, the skip from the American team, went on, whose team went on to win the gold medal, is going to be our guest on the show today. And uh, apparently... Kevy's quite a character.
1: I definitely know John Schuster have for a long, long time. And he is a character, a very knowledgeable curler, though, and it'll be fun to hear uh, hear his thoughts on, on many things.
0: Yeah, arguably one of the best curlers ever to come out of the United States. Uh, so we look forward to that in about 20 minutes' time. Warren, there was a hog line violation that we didn't know about until we heard Brad Gushu on the microphone uh, <laughs> standing down at the end of the rink uh, saying... Did you see my, our opponent, his crotch was at the hog line when he released the rocks. <laughs> <laughs> poor Brad, poor Brad, but Warren, there was more than just one or two people throwing it over the hog line. What's up with that?
2: Well, the hog line rule is one of the fascinating things about curling that uh, has been there for a long time, but uh, man, it's, it's created some issues and it's, it's one of the few things, there's not very many rules in curling, but this is one that, in my opinion, it really has to be adhered to. and Let's talk about why, but why did the problem exist last week? Well, normally at that championship, there would be electronic handles that have been in place since 2001 that uh, if you foul with a rock, a red light comes on and the rock comes off and it's pretty cut and dried, no questions asked. However, for whatever reason, they claim it was a technical one. Those handles were not used in either the Scotties, the Breyer or the Mixed Doubles. Apparently from what I'm hearing, they're going to be used in the worlds, but we'll wait and see. But if we go back through history, I mean, this game was designed to throw a rock initially from a crampet to a target 125 feet away at a button, and you're in a stationary position. And through time, uh, I guess in the 30s, the crampet was replaced with a foothold uh, that was still just a wire bracket, not very stable. And, and the sense of anyone trying to leave that particular foothold during the course of delivery was impossible. But in the 40s, the rubber hack was developed by Ole Olsen in Edmonton. And that began to change a lot of things and one of the great innovators of curling through all time was Ken Watson and he decided that maybe you could start to leave the rubber hack in the process of delivering the stone and slide out a bit which might give you some advantage. And if I go back to those days, even the 50s, probably what happened initially, he was wearing a toe rubber and kicked off the toe rubber and slid on the leather sole. And of course, the other problem that the leather shoe had a rubber heel. And uh, this is to some degree how people started sliding up onto their toe was to get less of the uh, surface of the foot in contact with the ice so they could go faster and you actually get that rubber heel off the ice. So that all started to happen with Ken Watson. He was sliding probably out to two or three feet in front of the T-line. And of course, at that time, the rock had to be released by the T-line. And as time went on, another young guy by the name of Stan Osman from Saskatoon was the first person who said, hey, look what I can do. Whatever he had on his shoe, I suspect it was maybe liquid solder, he put on a demonstration where he slid from the hack to the far end, put the rock on the button and continued to slide past it. Which all of a sudden, all the gray hairs went, whoops, we got a problem here we better deal with. And so the hog line that was originally brought into play because it was determined whether rock would be in or out of play now became the, the line that somebody decided, well, let's make sure that that rock has to be released by the time you get to the hog line. If you think about it, how the game was originally designed, you've now taken about 30 feet off of the uh, length of the sheet. So now you're delivering the rock to the target less than 100 feet away. So you've changed an awful lot of things and some of the things we've faced in recent years, I think, with low scoring games and things of this nature because that delivery has become so good and they're out there 30 feet from the hack, uh, it's becoming harder and harder to miss if you're good enough. And so, through time, this has always been an issue. It's been an issue forever as to people not adhering to that line. And in my opinion, it's got to be adhered to. There's got to be a line somewhere. And if you put it out another 10 feet, I'm sure it would only be a matter of time, it would be violated again. So, wherever that line has got to be, if we're going to have a game, we've got to pay attention to this line. So I think that's why it was important. So it's kind of interesting if I look back through history with the lights, there was maybe three or four fouls in in, say the briar would be maybe the maximum by my memory. All of a sudden, and you can tell people like Kevin and I who watched thousands of rocks of people coming out of the hack, as soon as somebody's kind of on top of that line, you're kind of like, whoops, that's different. Something's going on there. And then as the week progressed, it seemed like there was more and more and more. And I don't even want to get into how far over I thought a couple of people were in the course of their delivery. And I think it's human nature, there's nothing there to stop you, uh, you're thinking about a thousand things rather than where is that liner Am I coming up to it and maybe if it, you are thinking, thinking, well, it doesn't matter, there's no handles. But I think it's really important whatever is done with this going forward, it's got to be adhered to it. it's got to be adhered to in recreational play. You know, when we play golf, we play these other games, tennis, we're able to police things uh, amongst ourselves and, and do what's fair. And uh, I think it's a a fact of, uh, for the game to be played as we know it, that line must be adhered to. And uh, however that's dealt with going forward, I think is going to be a challenge for everyone involved with the sport. The chip
0: in the handle probably, Warren, in your opinion, uh, sounds like is the best solution to it. What happens, Warren, when someone does have a hog line violation? Do you stop the rock right away or do you let it finish? And then what's the result of the rule break?
2: The standard thing has been that the rock should be stopped right away. I know they have had some issues in the last number of years. Maybe again is why they had to replace those handles because there could be some false positives and exactly how they dealt those situations has been quite different. But the the standard practice is if you follow the hog line, the the rock should be stopped immediately. And I guess I also look at, there's two people that know exactly what's happening on every shot and that's the sweepers. They know if a rock's been fouled Mm -hmm. and uh, you know they should just say, whoops, we fouled that shot. And it's very hard for a person to do it visually because the rule says clearly released from the stone. So there's got to be daylight between the handle and the stone. Well, often a player will release the stone and their rock handle handles still be over top of the handle, even though it's not touching it. And a person on the line can't see that. Yet a television camera at mid-ice gives you quite a different concept of all. And quite often on an actual foul, it doesn't really show up camera uh, looking dead on into the release so it's a difficult one but the only real good solution is one the electronic handles two the sweepers uh of the team say we followed that rock
0: kev what if they did uh, like a lot of sports now what if they went to video review and the opposing team could throw up the odd challenge
1: (laughs) you know (laughs) yeah you're opening up uh, quite the can of worms there but uh, you know i think uh one thing that's important, um, I'm not I'm not so worried about this, actually. Warren and I don't disagree too often, but we do here today. So I didn't see much problem. Um, when you're talking about the top curlers in the world, now there'd be some curlers in some of these uh, national events that aren't at the top, right? It, you know, there's some that rank very low or, or not even ranked teams. You may see some of those athletes actually you know, going over the hog line too much or whatever, but for the most part, when you have uh, the... The handles the electronic handles in play once in a while it forces the top curlers to release that rock in time because you're throwing thousands of practice rocks the top players mm-hmm. you develop exactly where you release that 14 and a half second draw that 13 second just through the house shot whatever it might be you release the rock exactly the same every time and in the grand slams we actually tried the electronic handles for a couple of times but there weren't any, any violations because you're only dealing with the top curlers. And uh, for the most part, when you've got top curlers, they train so hard, And but it is important to Warren's point that we have these electronic handles once in a while, especially at big events, say the Olympic Games, mm-hmm. because then the curlers will train to let that rock go in time, I promise. <laughs> There's no question, because you don't want to get uh, a hog line violation in the semifinal of Olympics or something like that. So if you've got them occasionally in the big events, Great. That's good enough because the top players will train accordingly. I don't think it's possible that a top curler, because at the Briar, the Scotties, whatever the case may be, you started the week letting go at the right time, but then you start to carry the rock further on a draw. That would mess me up. Like I wouldn't. I wouldn't make near as many shots. So I think it was a bit blown out of proportion. I I don't see it being a big problem. I'm not a huge fan of the electronic handles, but I do understand that we need to have them occasionally just so that, uh, the, the athletes know, Hey, hey, you know, when it comes to going to the Olympic games, you better make sure you're releasing that rock in time. So you don't get a a hog line violation at a, at a bad time. But that's my feeling. I, I, am not a big fan of them. They're incorrect too often with the, uh, with the false positives. And all of a sudden the red lights are going off and you replay it and your hand is clearly awful. Now, what do you do? So to me, I don't think it's a big problem as long as in some events we have those electronic handles to keep the, uh, the athletes honest.
0: What happens if there's a bunch of rocks in the house and the guy's throwing the hard heat? What do they do, Warren? They got to replace, you know, if he knocks a bunch of rocks out of the house, they got to go back and replace all the rocks?
2: Yes. Okay. Yes, that would be the way to deal with it. Same as a, a burned stone. Once you get inside the hog line, which we're going to talk about in a couple of seconds, uh, the rocks are replaced uh, to the satisfaction of the opponent.
0: Let's talk about another violation, Warren. Uh, John Morris burned his last rock in the semifinal game. Explain to us, Warren, first of all, what a burned rock is and what you think should have happened. Uh, did John Morris handle this the right way?
2: Well, a burned rock in curling is as if the sweepers or anyone on your team interferes with the stone as it's progressing down the ice. So it's usually a broom that hits the stone and disrupts it in some way, shape, or form, which depending upon how hard you hit it, It can be varied but if you touch the rock at all it's considered to be burned and depending upon where you commit the foul is going to be reacted upon in a different way if it happens once you've released the stone up to the second hog line or the hog line at the playing end you are supposed to stop it immediately once it gets inside the hog line things change a bit you actually are supposed to let the rock continue to finish its uh, progress and then the opponent can do one of three things they can allow it to be left the way things sorted out after the rock came to rest, after it was burned. They can uh, remove the stone that was burned and put everything back in place the way it was originally. Or they have a third option of placing stones where they think things would have ended up had that rock not been touched at all. So in John's situation, it was, didn't matter because it was only a few inches from completion and it looked like it was short. And he hit it and stopped it, but in, in technically stopping it was not the uh, was not the right thing to do. He should have just left it.
0: Do you think, Warren, that rock would have scored if he didn't
2: burn it? No, I don't. Normal reaction, I think all of us would have, because of what the rule was over the years, if you hit the thing, you just stop it automatically. But I think the thing curlers have to remember is inside the hog line, if you hit the stone, just let it go. So,
0: Kevin, uh, what do you say about that, uh, that burned rock by John Morris?
1: Yeah, well, no, I think the that's fine because it wasn't going very fast and uh but it was always interesting, you know, Warren brought up a great point that uh after the hog line, you let it go and then it it makes a mess. And then you have to try to put all the rocks back. And sometimes you, you can move eight to 10 rocks in the house all over the place. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just a, a real disaster trying to get everything back to where, uh, to where you want to put it. Um, one other situation that is kind of interesting is if it's, if the rock is actually touched by the opposing team, and that would be something like a wide shot and the sweepers kind of get in the way uh, the sweepers that are not on your team, but the other team standing along the sideboards. And sometimes, you know, their broom could touch it once again. It goes as if you don't, you don't stop. It It goes and, uh, you you move the stones back. And and these are kind of, kind of, I guess maybe old fashioned type rules. Also a moving stone that gets touched by external forces, like in Switzerland, a bird landing on it because of the open uh, ends of the building. We (laughs) talked about a few uh, episodes ago, you let everything come to rest and, uh, place things where they would have been if the two teams can't agree this is kind of interesting if the two teams can't agree which of course could happen quite easily the shot is replayed after putting all the rocks back if the two teams can't agree where all the rocks are supposed to go back you have to replay the end so these are some interesting rules um, that are still in play today so that's kind of interesting where <laughs> You're, obviously, it could be in one team's best interest or the other one to either replay the shot or replay the end. right You can imagine that could be quite a quite an argument over certain uh, situations. So you know it is kind of a deep dive into the rules, but uh, there's some of them that uh, they don't come into play very often, but it's kind of fun to have uh, have everybody in uh, listening to this podcast realize that some of these rules are still in play that are kind of uh, a little bit tricky.
0: Boy, Kevin, if I had a dime for every time a bird landed on a curling rock.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I just remember, you know, we, we were playing in that, in that world championship in 97 and birds would be flying through the building from one side to the other all the time. And I'll never forget that as long as I live. That was, that was amazing.
0: <laughs> Did either one of you, uh, I'll start with you, Warren. Did either one of you in one of your big games have a hog line violation or a burned rock that resulted in, in losing the game?
2: And I'm thinking back, I can't think of that situation because, again, in in that period of time, uh, the the hog line rule wasn't enforced at all. And because somebody was trying to make a point, I remember playing in the briar in 1974, and all of a sudden, this was the old rule where you had to stop your body before you touched the line. They started to enforce it and started pulling rocks. And it was, again, people that were doing it that weren't trained to do this properly, and it was an absolute nightmare. But once again, it was a rule, and it had been violated a lot. And uh, all of a sudden, somebody at the Canadian Curling Association level decided we've got we to stop this and started putting people out there on the line to enforce it. So we, we've got to go one way or the other with how this is dealt with going forward because hopefully we're going to get to the point where somebody's throwing a curling ruck one of these days for a million dollars and uh, could get really, really dicey. And I mean, if we look at golf, I always look at the Dustin Johnson situation of the 2010 PGA Championship where he grounded his club twice in in a sand trap that he didn't know was a sand trap. And as a result, didn't make a playoff, which uh, was probably about 1.3 million, I believe at stake. So as we move forward as to how we deal with all this stuff, there has to be some common ground. What are we going to do with it? And how is this going to be handled? Mm -hmm. And in the curling, this is still very foggy, all this stuff as to, uh, as Ken says, some of these rules, and all of a sudden you're going to run into one of these situations in a a big game and uh, wow, what do we do now?
0: Ever happened
1: to you, Kev, during a big game? Well, I had had one really good one. I didn't have uh, many hog line violations, maybe a couple in in uh, in my whole career, but had one in in uh, I believe it was in Halifax in the Halifax Briar in 1995, and that was back before the electronic handles, and we had the Magoo on the line and uh, the Magoo <laughs> Magoo. You remember yeah. the guy in the co- the sure. comics that uh, can't see very good? Yeah, yeah. That that's the fellow who was on the line that day. And anyway. I was just throwing a guard and uh, lob a lava guard against Ed Wernick in the, uh, either a tiebreaker. I think it was a tiebreaker. Anyway, so I throw the guard and they pull it off for hog line. But unfortunately for, uh, for the fella, he, uh, there is such a thing as called a television and a replay. And I was off by, I don't know, three, four feet short of the line, but we couldn't reverse it. Like everybody in the crowd could see on the television screens that I had released it clearly. So of course, being my hot-headed self back when I was young, I'm not like that anymore. No, I kind of lose it a little bit. I absolutely, I'm not going to play anymore if that guy is still on the line. You've got to remove him from the line, right? And uh, how'd that go? Well, it didn't go very easily. And because with Werneck, if they don't put my guard back, Eddie's got a half rock double for a bunch, and he would have won the game. So you're, you know, this was in a playoff game in the '95 Briar, and and because of a a messed up hog line violation, it wasn't even close. It was three or four feet short of the line. We could have easily lost the game. Now Eddie didn't make that uh, double. So then we ended up escaping and we won that game and we ended up losing the semifinal to Burtnik that year, but that was a huge problem. So the, the, the human error, that wasn't the right answer having Magoo on the line, but, but <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to say the name of the fella, but, uh, he's a pretty well known person from BC, but I won't say the, uh, but anyway, um, to go to the electronic handles. You know is is certainly better than having somebody on the line because athletes come out like an ej harndon comes out so fast now there's just no way a, a human eye could possibly see exactly when that rock is released but we it didn't cost anybody a game but it sure was a funny situation
0: warren you have a history with uh barry fry of uh, who is the father of uh one of the one of the great curlers that's cooking these days uh ryan fry who's now the third with john epping and of course he won a gold medal with the uh, northern ontario brad jacobs team He's having some health challenges, Warren, and uh, you you wanted to say hello to him today and, and talk about his curling history.
2: Yeah, Barry is one of the great players from the 60s, 70s, and I guess even early 80s. And uh, He played in the Manitoba playoffs many, many times and uh, came very close to representing the province at the Briar, but didn't make it until 1979, and uh, that year he did win the Briar very interesting uh, situation there as well that was the last time mcdonald tobacco were the sponsor of the briar and it was the last time the briar was ever run without a playoff and uh, i think barry proved the point that a playoff was necessary because back in those days everybody got a buy for one round in the briar and he actually had won the briar after his final draw which was he had the buy on the final round so he was the briar winner and when they played the final round of the briar, he was sitting in the stand. So there was CBC televising live the final round of the briar, and the winners weren't even on the ice.
1: I didn't know that.
0: Small loophole.
1: <laughs> so yeah. the
2: point was proven. Well, it's very interesting because both with the Lassie, which uh, McDonald, the Women's Championship, uh, we're sponsoring as well, and that actually went uh, live to television in 1979, whereas the Briar was 1980. And the last Lassie that was played in 1978, with Chris Pizzarko as the winner, was the same situation. They sat in the stands during the last round, and uh, they were the winners. So it certainly proved the point that uh, there need to be a playoff uh, if the thing was to develop as far as a television product. But so Barry won the last McDonald's Briar. Uh, Kevin and I and Barry have something in common. All three of us played a world championship in that building in Switzerland with the birds in it and the <laughs> sun shining in, and and all three of, and all three of us lost. <laughs> <laughs> but I still love that building. <laughs> oh, it's a, be- a beautiful building. But uh, Barry was also the Canadian mixed championship winner in 1973. So great player, Don Duguid, nicknamed Barry the Snake, because he said when he comes out of the hack and he released the rock, he uncoils like a snake, and he he sort of more or less did, but. One of the great players uh, back from that era and uh, he's not feeling very well these days. And I think we'd like to wish him all the best and uh, hope things get better. I definitely want to wish you all the best Barry for sure.
0: Okay, Kev, what are you doing for the Worlds?
1: Yeah. So we've had lots of uh, people asking about the the telecast here. So it's kind of an interesting thing. Usually, of course, most years aren't COVID years and uh, for world championships, uh, for the men's world championship i'm usually not really involved and then women's and mixed doubles i usually work for nbc in the states but that's not happening this year so i'm working with the world curling television group for the men's worlds and the women's worlds and that's a worldwide feed that goes out and uh an nbc for the u.s side they'll pick up that feed with audio usually they would pick up the WCTV feed without audio and then we would do the voiceover out of Connecticut, out of Stamford, Connecticut for NBC. Mm-hmm. But this time instead, they'll just take the whole feed and put it on NBC uh, stations down in the state. So that's what we're doing. And can you listen to us? Uh, with the rights, I do not know if in Canada, if you go to uh, to stream the World Curling Television, if you're able to watch our production. Uh, in Canada, of course, TSN will be covering it. Uh, and then we cover for the rest of the world. So that's what's going on with... Uh, with the wctv we cover all of japan's games and most of the u.s games we do call some of the canada games so that they can go out across the uh, the world as well so it's kind of an interesting uh, a feat for the world curling federation to be able to put this television out over all the nations because curling is growing at such a fast pace around the world
0: i think i understood all that kev i was trying to write it all down very fast. My attention span is isn't very good, uh, but you guys are busy. Uh, stick around, everybody. We're going to be right back. Well, I'll tell you what, fellas. Kevin and Warren and all the good listeners out there, everyone loves an underdog story. And uh, our guest, oh, he's knocking at the door, okay? Before we let him in, I just want to, you know, talk about what this guy did against all odds. Nobody gave this guy a chance. And, uh, of course, he won the Pyeongchang Olympics, the gold medal, been to a bunch of world championships, been to, you know, a bunch of Olympic trials, of course. And we're talking about the one and only, Mom, get out the good cake. Make a pot of Sanka. We got a guest. John Schuster, the skip of the U.S. men's team, joins us right now. We found him down in the bubble in Calgary. How are you, John? I'm doing all right. When you hear all that, John, where where did it turn around for you before we bring on Kevin and Warren? I want, I've want i been wanting to talk to you for a long time because I love this story. I think it's one of the greatest stories in all of sports, what you did. How did you pull it off?
3: Obviously, it's kind of well-documented, maybe more so down on my side of the border, but you know, after we had that two and four start at the Olympics and after the obvious failures of the previous two Olympics, you know, kind of was obviously as a player, it gets kind of difficult. But the Olympics is the biggest stage and, you know, I cared so darn much about it. So, you know, after we lost those two games to Japan and Norway to get to two and four, mm-hmm. you know, did some soul searching and I'd really just, for me, put myself in a place where I f- tried to figure out what I could do to give my kids three games that they could maybe show their grandkids someday and uh and really show what I had put my life's work towards and I just decided I was going to kind of do it for them and be the best version of myself I've ever been and all of a sudden I started making chops.
1: (laughs) John you know what I I was of course in Pyeongchang and uh, I saw the interview live with Trenny that you're talking about after going to two and four and you had me crying like crazy and and like it was a complete in my opinion emotional breakdown that you had um and that's okay because uh, to no, that your was point.
3: Uh, that was after we beat Canada though, Kev. That wasn't yeah. after the uh, <laughs> loss to Norway though. So that was after a win. So I don't know if that was an emotional breakdown or that was just uh, yeah. But
1: <laughs> it, it got to me. So I'm yeah. not exactly <laughs> sure. But but I'd like it from a teaching moment to young people that play sports all over the world and they get into these high pressure situations. I'd like to hear your thoughts on when that happened, when whatever you want to call it. Uh, where emotions got the best of you, but that seemed to, it just changed your world. Like you came out of that gangbusters and not just beating Canada, like you said, but then also beating Switzerland. Then you beat Scotland, to make the playoffs. Then you shoot 91 against Canada in the semis. And then of course, of course, the final. So I guess if you can tell me mentally or inside your brain, because nobody can see that, what difference did that make to you personally?
3: It's crazy because the, you know, from the time I was a kid, the Olympics was my favorite sporting event, you know, outside of maybe like the world series in baseball, but in representing your country, as you well know, uh, is the biggest honor you can have. And so I cared so much and I think that also carried with it a pretty heavy burden. And, you know, when I, when I shifted from representing my country to representing my family and kind of, you know, just deciding to like let myself off the hook and that emotion off the hook was where I needed to be to compete my best and that I don't think that's the same for every athlete but and I never really knew that I could you know take emotion completely out of it and perform the way I did because I thought that I thought that caring so much also meant getting to yourself to the best performance but apparently for me in that um, stage all of a sudden not caring about results and just caring more about like you know how, how i carried myself and and enjoying the moment and all of a sudden you know let myself off the hook and i was ready to go
1: funny how it is when you can enjoy yourself a lot more when you're making every shot <laughs> and beating everybody and uh, and it is a lot more enjoyable and somehow there's just not as much pressure when you're curling like you did there there's no question about that
0: what was the biggest change in your life john you know beside the obvious from winning the gold. How did it affect you going forward after that and what's been going on the last several years since you did knock everybody off and win the gold medal?
3: Winning an Olympic gold is life-changing and obviously they say you have about a 30-day window after the Olympics and if it's a really good story you might have a 90-day window where you're kind of in the spotlight but Mm -hmm. we really embraced everything that was offered to us and tried to do everything we could because you know we didn't know how long that was gonna that window was gonna last but uh, one thing that did happen was, you know, our story did resonate with so many people that it's brought other opportunities along with it that are still continuing to go along. Whereas, you know, I wasn't sure when I, you know, if I ever retire from curling, what I was going to be doing. And, you know, and now I have kind of a, a little bit of a speaking career going on, you know, because of this. So, you know, it really just has opened up some doors and some eyes for all of us that for what life after curling could be, because, you know, for me, I knew that and I know that I will definitely step away from the game where, you know, chasing whatever my dream is doesn't 100% support, you know, my kids going after their dreams. So my clock is ticking here because uh, I got I got a seven-year-old and a five-year-old at home with uh, with big dreams and aspirations that I want to do everything I can to support like my parents did for me.
2: So you're in the United States and you won a gold medal. I'm wondering if you figure uh, you got the whole reward out of this that you would have. I know here in Canada, things are a little different, but uh, did you get the response across the board that you thought you should have out of winning that gold medal? And I guess what kind of impact do you think that's had on curling in the United States?
3: We've got a lot of, you know, bang for our buck on, on winning both personally as, and as an organization. Um, It is so exciting to see the growth that we have going on in our country as far as curling clubs being built. You can look around our entire country, you know, north, south, east, west, mainly south though, that, you know, you have these major metros that are building dedicated ice curling. I think Austin, Texas just announced that they're close to having their finished dedicated ice curling club in Charlotte, North Carolina and Atlanta, Georgia. And I mean, there, I was just did a call like fundraising call with Indianapolis, Indiana, that's uh, getting close to getting, you know, ground broken and multiple ones down in the twin cities. It's, and these curling clubs aren't just being built, but they're being filled with people who are just excited to try out this sport that they've been you know, captivated by, and especially, you know, with us winning and getting more of that television coverage and recognition. And honestly, myself and all of my teammates, you know, from 2018 are doing everything we can to embrace and support that and to help our sport grow. Cause you know, obviously, you know, in Canada, it's one of those things where curling clubs are closing and that kind of thing. And, and we're trying to figure out, you know, how to keep opening more and more so it can really support this sport for the long, long term down South of the border.
2: Yeah, there's a very different attitude in the United States about the sport than there is in Canada, and uh, Kevin and I have talked about it a fair amount. But we're both uh, really bullish on USA curling, and we both think that it's just on the edge of, of really tipping down there. And so, what you're saying certainly reinforces that. So, let's uh, hope it all keeps going.
3: There's a lot of growth to be had, and I think embracing that, and honestly, our competitive teams embracing that, will will do a lot in the long run for uh, continuing the growth in our country.
0: You know, a Canadian taking up cricket people would turn to them and go, you're out of your mind, you got, you got no chance. And back in the day, John, you, you may be too young for this, but, but certainly U.S. was never on the radar in curling, and yet you stuck with it. When you did look at that sport, when you decided to play and you know, move along through it and try and compete, what was your attitude about it? Because it certainly is tough ground to break in the curling world back when you started.
3: I would wholeheartedly disagree with you on that.
0: There we go. Okay, <laughs> that, good, perfect. I,
3: I would because I grew up in the Hibbing and Chisholm in the Chisholm Curling Club and in the Hibbing Curling Club, and I remember the first time walking into that Hibbing club and seeing a life-size mural on the wall of uh, of <laughs> of Bruce and Joe Roberts and uh, Jerry Scott and Gary Clefman sweeping a rocking at the World Championships because they were 1976 World Champions, and I actually think. Seeing all those national championship banners in the Hibbing Curling Club—if you go back to, you know, Nick Jerule and Dick Brown—and and especially seeing the ones that the Roberts brothers won—I actually, I believe that I could win in curling because I was curling at a curling club with a team that won a world championship in 1976. And granted, that was before I was born, mm-hmm. but three of those guys on that team were still curling in the same league I was playing in, and they're still very, very good. So I think uh, I didn't think of the U.S. as being. You know, granted, I know we didn't win a world championship from the 80s all the way until today. I really did grow up believing that, that we had the ability to do it from the area I was from because curling had such a rich tradition in my area we just had our first fight john and you won <laughs> <laughs> yeah we used to be atop the podium and then we had a little bit of a drought so i'll give you uh yeah fair enough <laughs> okay
2: yeah i was telling jim yesterday he didn't realize how many united states teams have won world championships and people like bud somerville and
3: uh, bruce roberts and uh, bob nichols Yeah, we got lots of them
2: and billy strang actually won uh three world championships as well. So and I remember Somerville knocking out a Canadian team in
1: the 92 Elbowville uh, Olympics as well and taking a bronze away. I think that was
2: uh, Somerville beat
1: us <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> in 1992. So John, it's uh, been a strange year. You won the U.S. Nationals a little over a year ago and you're now getting to play in a world championship. So have you guys been able to uh, to throw rocks? Have you played in any competitions or, at all or what have you been doing for the last year?
3: I feel like I want to keep that close to the vest, man. No, um, yeah, we actually, our team had a very, very cautious approach to COVID because, you know, I had COVID in my house. My wife came back from the club national championships that she played in last March and uh, 75% of the competitors at that event brought COVID home. So our team had a very, very cautious approach. And when we had the ability to play in the fall, you know, we weren't really quite comfortable yet. So we didn't play in any, of and there were two events in the U.S. that happened, or an event and a practice kind of scrimmage weekend that we didn't play in but uh you know we got ice at the Duluth curling club and and even though the club was closed for a couple months we got an exemption as as athletes that were part of a national team to practice and we have an ice crew at our club that was 100 percent behind putting in you know world caliber ice for us every day so I mean I actually got better practice ice than I've had my entire career and I've had great practice ice my entire career then we got uh, after the beginning of January, we got a bunch of scrimmage games against uh, Dropkin and Runin, who are both top 15 teams in the world, and, um, and a bunch against Tab Peterson, who's going to be representing us here at the w- women's as well. So um, we got a bunch of games in against those teams and more practice rocks in a row than I've gotten in my life because didn't, we didn't have to travel. So it was actually uh, a very, very good year. I think we're very well prepared to come here and perform.
2: So you have slightly different team than you won the Olympics with in 2018. And the fact that Tyler George Step back from curling for a while, and you've now got Chris Plies. How has that worked out? Is there any change in your team dynamics with Chris versus Tyler, or is it uh, pretty much smooth sailing from your point of view?
3: Uh, It's been pretty much smooth sailing, but obviously, you know, you ever change one player and it changes an entire team dynamic. So um, the good news is in our country, you know, with our national team, the way it's been set up now over the last, you know, six or eight years, uh, it's pretty easy for a player to move from one team to another because we do a lot of the same things uh, in training and that kind of thing. And And when Chris moved in, I, I'll remember the first event he played with us up in Winnipeg, 2018, 19 season. And I couldn't believe how smooth of a transition it was going to be. And obviously we've learned a lot since then. And I think we've continued to get better along the way. So I, it's been a really smooth transition. Chris Plies is an amazing player. And you guys, I'm sure have seen that, you know, when we've played at world championships and in slams that he can hold his own against any third in the world. And, uh, and we've had a, a great two seasons plus now this COVID season together, but, uh, I think we're still getting better as a team, as a foursome, just like our previous team, you know, was together from 14 to 18, got better all the way till the end there.
1: I think I saw that clearly with uh, with Chris right away that you got along really well, but I saw a little different in uh, in the in the assets that he brings versus Tyler. And one of them is his hitting ability. Now, Tyler George, not as good a hitter, but unbelievable touch, feel, hacky, boardy, weight, all that stuff. And Chris can do that too, but he brings that high hard one and it's just a natural, easy throw for him. Um, has that changed your your maybe style of play a little bit? We, we talked about that actually a couple of times during the Grand Slams watching you guys. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts on Chris's assets being slightly different than Tyler, but I agree with you. Uh, it seems like it's been a very easy change.
3: You know, it hasn't changed a ton. I mean, obviously he does have the ability to you know throw a six and a half second peel down the ice, super accurate. So... Um, anytime you have that weapon, you know, if you have the, a, a choice between throwing a hack waiter, that's somewhat helpful or a run back, something that could be the best shot on the sheet. I'm not afraid to go put the best shot on the sheet out there for Chris. Whereas, you know, when Ty was playing, he could definitely make run backs and stick run backs. And I think he might have a stat that he thinks he made every run back he threw at the Olympics. However, if there was a hacker board weight shot that was equally as good as a run back for Ty, no doubt I'm having him throw that hack to board waiter. Cause that guy was unbelievable at him. So, I'm not taking anything away from Chris's ability to throw mm. hack and board waders, but I probably am a little less shy to try to throw, you know, a shot where you got to get five or six rocks moving with Chris throwing as the tie, but it really hasn't changed too much because, you know, Chris does have the ability to throw any shot that I put down for him.
2: So you've got a bunch of uh, younger guys coming behind you there. Corey Dropkin is the uh, number one name I'm certainly very aware of. And those guys I think are coming along pretty well. Any other young players you see in the future coming out of the U S ranks that you'd, uh like to say something about?
3: Yeah, I mean, we have uh, we have a lot of young talent in our country. I mean, Luke Violet, who's the skip of our U twenty five team now, who was at the World Juniors a few times, playing third and also skipping. Uh, they were two and zero against us last year, so I think I can't not mention Luke because uh, they they got us twice last year in a couple of events. So another team last year at our nationals that really showed me something, and especially in our game we played against them, but also where they finished was Chase is a kid that you know was always he not always, but the last couple of years. You know, had been right up there in the finals of juniors and uh, the game they played against us at the Nationals in the round robin last year was as good of a game as anyone played against us. And uh, an incredibly talented kid and a in a really good leader as far as his skipping ability goes. And the rest of his guys from his team are uh, also up and coming. So I'm, I'm really excited for our near future in our country for, you know, the caliber we're going to have we're going to continue to have these you know teams being top 20 teams. I would say for the foreseeable future, if these guys keep developing and if they keep curling, which, as you guys know in Canada, that's it is a tricky thing. If we're going to be the team that has been to so many worlds in a row, we don't want to discourage people from coming up and continuing to try. And that's uh, that is something that you know our country is really trying to support that through our junior national team and through our U25 uh, program that we've going on. So,
2: so you got kind of a strange situation happening there this year. You're you're playing your U.S. nationals in May. So what's going to happen there with regard to the uh, world championship next year? Is that the winner going to go to it or will the winner of 2022 be going?
3: I believe, and this I don't have all the details, but our national championships this year was similar to the Brier and the Scotties where they held spots for uh, Olympic trials berths. So that was why it was so important to get our nationals played this year was that the top two finishers at our nationals this year were going to get direct berths to the Olympic trials. So I think that was... The main thing that's going to be coming out of our national championships, besides deciding who our national championship is, champion is, of course. So uh, with that being the case, uh, we felt as an organization, I think they felt it was very important to get that done and to try to do it safely. And they finally have found a place and a time where they thought we, that we could do that.
1: So it looks like the winner of that then will get the spots in the trials, but there'll be another national championship before the next Worlds. Is that what you're saying, John? That is correct. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. It's hard to argue with that because you do need to, all these nations are trying to figure out how to pick their teams to have a chance to go to the next Olympics with uh, a year, year and a half taken off.
3: Yeah, it was, it was tricky, obviously. So they had a protocol set and everything that the way that the teams are going to be, you know, get to the Olympic trials. And then when COVID came along, they reconvened and said, okay, well, if this is the case, then we're going to do it this way. If this is the case, we're going to do it, you know, the other way. And I think as an organization, Um, From what we hear, at least as athletes, that this was where they thought was the safest and the best way to get the best teams to our Olympic trials.
2: So this world championship we're going into is going to be a little unique in the fact that there's now 14 teams in it and it's going to be a round robin. So you're playing 13 round robin games. What do you think of all that? Do you think that's maybe, maybe a little too many or how do you think they should be possibly running that for the future?
3: I can't really say. I know that we have, by looking at the depth that's here. I actually think that there's there are 14 teams that deserve to be at the World Championships as far as the talent level. I don't think back, you know, maybe 10 years ago, if you had 14 teams, you're going to have five or six teams that, I mean, we're going to struggle to compete. And we don't have that anymore. I mean, you know, I look at my schedule and you're looking for a soft game and they're hard to find. <laughs> they don't really exist. So, I mean, I love that we have that many teams that can compete on the world stage. But 13 games in a eight-day period is is a lot of games. You know, ourselves as a team, we're we're prepared to do what we need to do, planning to get our alternate in, if that's the case, and having Colin play some games. And, uh, I mean, if that's what we have to do, that's what we have to do, because that's obviously – I mean, we could theoretically play 16 games if we end up in the – you know, in that quarterfinal game, in a semi, in a, in a gold medal or bronze medal game, that's 16 games. So I think the way the Briar did it this year, I was okay with it. We used to run our nationals, actually, back in the beginning of my men's days as a 16-team split round Robin with a crossover, the four best teams. And, you know, it's a way to get, again, that, that could still end up being, you know, 11 games, but that's a little more feasible than the 13. That's kind of excessive, but um, you know, we're happy to be here and, and happy to play whatever schedule that anybody puts ahead of us.
0: So is that how they do it now for your national championship with a crossover?
3: No, it's actually not. I mean, it, it was because we have a certain number of regions and when we used to have a regional based playoff system, we went from regionals and then you had like a second chance where you had four more teams that could qualify. And we had the 12 regions in our country. But uh when we went to a strict, you know, challenge round, like two different rounds and people could play with anybody from anywhere, then we actually went down to a 10 team field at our nationals and it's a straight round Robin. And honestly, I think that was the case because that was what the Olympics was and that was close to what the world's was. And that's what we decided we wanted to have our national championships best prepare our teams for the, same tournament that you're going to show up to at the world championships. Cause the Europeans had that and the briar had that, but as, as our country was, it wasn't quite the same. And we wanted to make sure that that schedule is very, very similar to what we'd see at world championships. And we've, you know, done that over the past decade now.
1: I'd like to talk to you a little bit, John, just uh, before we let you go here and uh, let you get back to practicing and all the stuff you've got to do. But this is probably to your point, the best field I've seen in a world championship, maybe ever because there's six teams in the top 20 which of course you're one of but even if you go all the way down to uh to number 11 in the rankings you're all in the top 100 and that doesn't even include uh joel Returnas of italy who i think is really good i would like to get your thoughts on some of these teams that you think obviously the top four or five you know who they are they're the the cream of the crop in the world curling but there's some really good team uh teams like italy and Xiang Zhu out of uh, China, who I I consider they could be sleepers. I'd like to get your thoughts on it uh, going into this big event.
3: They're not sleepers anymore. I mean, you've seen, you know, Joel Retornas has been, you know, I think he was in the top three or four in the standings at the Worlds back in Lethbridge in 19 all the way until the last three games. That's definitely a team. I know that the the young kids from Germany are very young, but I know that they had a lot of success in their junior careers, so... You know, it's interesting to see what this uh, what this new Korean team is going to show too because, you know, we we haven't seen them play. And I feel like, you know, sometimes you can have a game plan against teams you've seen a few times. But uh, when you have teams that you don't know about, and I know those guys are going to throw the rock great because it seems like all the <laughs> top teams from Asia throw the rock great. So, But I think Japan is still that one team that Matsumura made that step when he got, you know, his chance after the other guys, you know, kind of took a year off and, and has really ran with it. So, I mean their team just like at the world's a couple years ago is, uh, can that kid can get hot and make a ton of shots and win a lot of games.
0: John, I got to ask you about the mixed doubles going forward. If you're going to continue doing that, I I've, I've gone to the very accurate Wikipedia to see that you were there in 2019. Did you get a chance to watch any of the the national
3: finals here? Yeah, sure. I watched every single draw almost, believe it or not. Cause we have uh TSN and ESPN having their partnership. We were able to watch all the Scotties and Briars and, uh, and games from mixed doubles. And yeah, I watched, watched all those games because I really enjoy playing mixed doubles. And Corey Christensen and I have had a really, really good last few years where we lost the finals, of the Olympic trials in 2018. And, you know, and we won the national championship in 19 and we lost the finals, of the national championship last year. So um, it's, it's a lot of fun to watch and to see, you know, when they're playing on, on great, you know, nearly perfect ice for mixed doubles, if that, how the strategy changes and evolves. And uh it was fun to watch. And I, I also love playing mixed doubles because I, I think that, rock positioning and in, in the way I see it in the shots you should play that I have a very good handle on it. And I love seeing when it's different than what teams are playing and also seeing people get punished for shots. I don't think they should play that maybe they play or or have success playing something that I wouldn't have played. It was a lot of fun to watch.
2: As I recall, you were just about one shot uh, short of being the mixed doubles team in uh, Korea uh, in 2018, as I remember, because uh, Matt, your teammate was uh, was your opponent and you were that close to beating him, were you not?
3: Yeah, my uh, my partner had a little back eight foot bump for three when we were down two playing the last end, and uh, or maybe it was a bump for two when we were down one, and uh, and she let it go, and we went down the sheet, and I was kind of cleaning it, and she had me off and off and off, and all of a sudden she panicked, and uh, and I swept it, and we touched their rock in the top four foot by about a quarter of an inch, and uh, and rubbed, and and Matt ended up going to the Olympics, which again kind of heartbreaking but did you
0: just throw your partner under the bus
3: (laughs) (laughs) hey man i wish i i wish i was as good of a sweeper as my guys are for me because she totally would have made that shot but she had a skip on the brush first i'll I'll take half i'll take half credit for that
1: i was gonna i was gonna comment on that john because i was behind the sheet i called that game and uh, i thought halfway down that shot was made and just to your point just we ticked and uh, hopefully you get another chance
3: it definitely jumped in. You know what, uh, if we get another chance, great. And I love playing with Corey and she's a, a phenomenal partner and teammate along with my teammates here. But uh, yeah, we're so we're really looking forward. We have our birth into the Olympic trials by finishing second at nationals last year. So, um, you know, I was trying to continue to develop different uh, facets of the game. And, and for me, mixed doubles has been one of those things that I've had a lot of fun with in the last few years.
0: Uh, John, you certainly have been a breath of fresh air. Uh, you know, in the in the curling world, your your name is synonymous now uh, with achievement. You'd mentioned that you do some public speaking. Can you tell us in thirty or sixty seconds what what your big message is when you do
3: speak? You know, for me, I I just our team really you know came a long ways along with our you know sports psychologists working with us and uh, and with our team and and really so I I talk a lot about you know obviously teamwork like any cur- good curler and good skipple, but um, you know, our team really got a lot out of, out of being very, very vulnerable with each other in every moment and, uh, and really just focusing on that relationship and communication as a team. So I do a lot of talking, uh, to, you know, the ability as guys and as curlers to, to being able to be vulnerable with your teams and, and with companies with their employees, uh, in their teams to get the most out of every situation. So it's, uh, it, it's fun to be able to tell a lot of the, the Olympic stories that I have to uh, people that maybe aren't familiar or uh, want to hear it again. So I've, I've had a great time with it. What's your funniest story? Funniest story? I don't think I have any really funny stories, man. I, uh... That you can tell. <laughs> no, no, no. You know what? Uh, gosh, you put me on the spot, and now you're trying to get me to be funny, but it's just uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm more of a one-liner guy. I don't tell big, long, funny stories, unfortunately.
1: <laughs> You've got Matt Hamilton on the team to do that.
3: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, uh, yeah. That's that's definitely for sure. But uh, one of the most fun things I think our team did was at Olympic Trials. You know, we lost the first game of a best of three series in 2018, had our backs against the wall, and uh, so what did our team do for uh, our big change before that second game of the best of three series? Went to the Omaha Zoo and screamed at the howling monkeys. So, (laughs) and you better believe we went back to that Omaha Zoo before Game Three too. I gotta try that.
0: Yeah, scream at the holly monkeys. John, thanks a million for taking the time. We uh, we really appreciate it because I know you're in the heat of the battle here, coming up shortly. And uh, how much practice time are you getting before?
3: Thirty minutes twice today, so we got an hour today and an hour tomorrow, and then I think an hour on Thursday. So you know we're just trying to get the most out of every single one of those rocks because I generally don't take four days off during a curling season. So
0: right, right on. Well, we've given a lot of guests of ours who have come on the show. Uh, we've given them a lot of karma well carrie anderson right is she's having a hell of a month she's doing okay so maybe you got some karma here john we really appreciate
3: it and all the best
0: good luck to you and your team
3: thank you so much for having me and i hope you did bring that karma (laughs) along.
1: hey thanks a lot john good luck to you play well thank you
0: Well, boys, another good show. Uh, Warren, I would li- like your, like I said earlier, wearing your referee hat, talking about the rule breaks, hotline and uh, hotline.
2: Hot, hot <laughs> go, go, go. go. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I just took a rock in the mouth from John Schuster. Uh, boys, that was a pretty good interview. I thought Johnny was good. I managed to completely 100% embarrass myself. Uh, he got on me about that. But, <laughs> God, he sounds like a great guy, Warren, and, and got lots to say.
2: Oh yeah, John's a character and he's certainly part of the mainstay of curling in the United States and uh, he's a very good player. So I'm looking for them to do some pretty big things at this world event happening next week.
0: Fair enough to say, Kev, that John Schuster would be really, really responsible for the growth of curling. Well, their
1: team definitely has a lot to do with it, and uh, you know what? I don't think I can say this very often, but he's 38 years old, and I can honestly say that I believe John Schuster is just getting better and better. He's still improving. So, you know, you hear him talking about the twilight or whatever of <laughs> his career, and worried about his his kids and stuff. He's got a few really, really good years left, and he's uh, and he's just getting better. So, uh, watch out this world championship.
0: I know he wants to uh, to really make his mark. Warren, when are you guys going to do your first rap? That became very popular.
2: We'll be there doing one at the end of Friday night after the first day is completed and we'll be doing that every day. Um, I'll be there for sure. And Kevin will be there whenever he can be.
1: Bubble boy, you're going to be okay, yeah. Kevin? <laughs> in the bubble and yeah, just the late games. If I do the late games, there's usually a production meeting afterwards. So I don't get back to the hotel till midnight or so. So <laughs> a little late for a wrap <laughs> for then, but uh, the the, uh, the game or the days when I'm not working in the evenings. I'll I'll definitely put a wrap out with, uh, wrap it up with Warren.
0: Right on, boys. Uh, Another great show. If you're uh, interested, quickly, I didn't get to it it very much during the show. If you want to do a Zoom call with us, uh, we're happy to do that. We've done eight or nine of them now. Uh, You can email us, insidecurling at gmail.com, and we'll try and set that up for you. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, uh, so you can check us out there. And uh, Warren does answer a lot of those emails, and uh, our Facebook group is growing exponentially and we use a lot of that stuff for the show too so as you were fellas uh, Kev we're going to talk to you next time in Warren and there will be some results from the world championship so we'll talk to you next week everybody thanks a lot you've been listening to another episode of Inside Curling.
1: thanks Jimmy thanks
2: Jim okay boys